Um, yeah, there's been a, an argument, the argument from prophecy, that's intrigued me for a long time, ever since I probably first met it in the works of the American apologist Josh McDowell, and books like uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, where it intrigued me, but also slightly frustrated me. Uh, and coming at this argument uh, f with a, a sort of skeptical mindset, I would often find people presenting the argument by giving one quote from the Old Testament, sometimes which I, I thought was quoted out of context in order to make it mean something about Jesus when clearly it hadn't had anything to do with the Messiah uh, in the first place, and then proving that this prophecy had been fulfilled by giving you a reference to a Bible verse. Like, you know, and this is fulfilled in Matthew's Gospel verse this, which I think, well, okay. I think there's something intriguing there, but I think the argument needs firming up in terms of its methodology, its use of history, uh, how it goes about interpreting scripture and so on. So I, I've come back uh, now and then to this argument. Uh, in my book, Understanding Jesus, I took a, a stab at looking at the argument uh, about messianic prophecy, and we'll cover some of that today. And I've come back to it again in expanding upon uh, the argument and, and trying to, to fine-tune it. I think there's, there's more room to go uh, in this direction. Uh, I'll mainly talk about arguments for fulfilled biblical prophecy, but I'll say a little bit at the end uh, about arguments from fulfilled biblical prophecy. It's interesting to see that it's an argument that many skeptics today uh, <coughs> mention in passing as uh, an area where you could, in principle, get evidence uh, for the truth of the Christian revelation claim. So this is a quote from the New Atheist author Victor Stenger in his book, The New Atheism. And he says, in order to validate a claim about a, a spiritual experience, he says, all that has to happen is that the person returning from such an experience reports some fact that she could not have known ahead of time. This could be the successful prediction of some future event. Now, as we'll see, this is far too lax a criteria, far too lenient a criteria, actually, for uh, uh, an argument on these grounds. But it's interesting to note that there's a sort of openness there uh, that sort of invites you uh, to say, well, okay, I think I can, I can not only meet your criteria, I can actually improve upon your criteria and still meet it. Bernard Ram noted that uh, prophecy is part and parcel of biblical religion, and uh, according to some estimates, some 27, 30%-ish of the Bible consists in predictions about the future. Now, of course, theologically speaking, prophecy does not just mean making predictions about the future. Uh, it means speaking the word of God into a situation. Um, but nevertheless, uh, a lot of prophecy, a big chunk of biblical prophecy, does consist in predictions about the future. Now, you could uh, hive them off into a number of different categories, though. Um, there are what I might call uh, more or less short-term prophecies, prophecies um, that are fulfilled within the lifetime of the people who hear the prophet issue the prophecy. Now, that is very useful for those people because they can use those short-term prophecies to judge the prophet and to have a, a validation, miraculous validation, of that prophet as a prophet for God. It's not so useful for us living now, uh, and we'll see why. We could also talk uh, about long-term prophecies, not so useful for people living in biblical times, in the lifetime of the prophet, but much more useful argumentatively for us, and then finally, you can talk about end-time prophecies, about the end of days, the day of the Lord, and so on, the second coming, last judgment. Um, again, no use for us or them in terms of making an argument uh, for God or something like this. Uh, by the time it, it happens, well, we'll be there anyway. Uh, so we can't access uh, those events now in order to use them. So um, in making an argument from biblical prophecy, we're mainly going to want to focus upon the long-term stuff, but I will mention some of the shorter-term stuff and, and how we can weave that in. Just a few quotes from the Bible about prophecy. The Bible itself issues uh, making reliable, uh, fulfilled prophecy uh, as a test of prophets and of revelation. 
from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Deuteronomy. Um, it was very risky if you were a, uh, an Israelite prophet to issue a prophecy because if it didn't come true, you were likely to get yourself stoned to death uh, because of Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22 here. Um, so uh, it is uh, a risky prediction in, in, in various senses uh, of the term to issue a prophet. Um, Jeremiah, the prophet who prophesies peace, will be recognized as one truly sent by the Lord only if his prediction comes true, because in the context it was prophesying peace that was the risky prediction that was unlikely to come true, whereas uh, prophesying that there was going to be strife and war and so on, well, yeah, that was a very Barnum statement, you know, tomorrow, tomorrow you will meet a tall, dark stranger kind of stuff, which doesn't impress anyone. Uh, Isaiah 41, 23, tell us what is to come hereafter that may, we may know that you are God, that you are divine. This is a, a, a sign of divinity, a stamp of divinity, to know the future and prophesy it. And it's used as an apologetic throughout the New Testament, especially in the writings of Luke, but we see it uh, being used as, a, as an argument by Jesus himself, by the Apostle Peter, and by the Apostle Paul. So let's look at some uh, short-ish term city prophecy in terms of Jesus and the temple, just to give you a, a flavor of some of the historical stuff first. And then I'll jump back, methodologically speaking, and look at some stuff about criteria. But I thought, I, I don't want to start in the abstract. I want to start in the concrete. Then we'll do a bit of abstract philosophical statistical stuff. And then we'll come back to applying that to the more concrete. But I thought, let's start with Jesus as a prophet talking about uh, the temple. It's an argument used by folks such as uh, William Paley in his book, A View of the Evidences of Christianity, uh, where he talks about uh, Isaiah 53 in Messianic Prophecy and Jesus in the Temple. Um, Ian Wilson uh, notes that it is a straight fact of history that Herod's seemingly so permanent temple, which Jesus had predicted would be destroyed within a generation of his time, and you note we've got multiple quotes here across the Synoptic Gospels, that the temple did indeed suffer this very fate. So here is in the, the uh, generally agreed earliest of those Gospels in Mark, which, and I don't have the time to go into the reasons for this here, but I would date Mark to 49 AD, which is quite a bit earlier than some people would. But uh, be that as it may, here's the quote from Mark. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, the phrase risky prediction that I used earlier comes from the famous philosopher of science, Karl Popper, uh, who talked uh, in scientific uh, theorizing about uh, risky predictions. He said confirmations of your theory should count only if they're the result of a risky prediction, rather than, well, obviously, you know you're going to find that. And so when you do the experiment and you find that, it doesn't really validate your theory. But if you make a risky prediction and you get empirical confirmation, that uh, gives some uh, warrant to believing the theory that made that risky prediction. So how risky a prediction would it be for Jesus to say those things about the temple? Well, let's use a control group, as it were, in scientific terms. Um, a few years ago, as an ELF speaker, I was privileged to go to Greece, and I, I got a morning off to go and visit the Parthenon. Uh, so here's the Parthenon in Greece, which is very much the kind of temple complex that you're looking at with the, the Jewish temple. Here we have the pagan uh, central temple on the big temple complex. The Parthenon is still standing. It's in a bit of a state, granted, <laughs> but it and the surrounding temples are still at least partially standing there after 2,000 years, despite the fact that the Turks, during uh, one of the wars this uh, complex has been through, used it as an ammunition store for gunpowder, and uh, it got hit by a shell and the gunpowder blew up. <laughs> the Parthenon is still standing after 2,000 years. So you can't count upon um, pointing to a temple and saying, well, that's going to be destroyed, 
uh, and that just uh, happening. In AD 70, we know from extra-biblical history that the uh, Roman uh, general Titus destroys the Jerusalem temple, and here is the triumph arch of Titus, a panel from it showing uh, soldiers with booty from the Jerusalem temple, and you can see the menorah candlestick there from the, uh, from the temple being carried off in triumph by the Romans. We're told that at a distance, the whole temple uh, looked literally like a mount of snow, fretted with golden pinnacles. Well, after the Jewish rebellion and the rebels hold up in the temple as their main stronghold, so the Romans had to conquer it, the temple was destroyed and fire raged inside and out, causing the gold fittings and the gold gilding on the temple, inside and out, to melt. And the gold ran into the cracks between and in the stonework of the temple complex. So during the pillaging of the temple, those stones were broken apart and broken up so that the Romans could get at the gold, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy that no stone would be left on another. And indeed, still today, around the temple, this is the, the temple mount wall, you can see some of the stones that were thrown down after this picking apart and getting the gold out process, thrown down, destroying the pavement uh, underneath, still there today. And of course, if you look at the temple complex today, with the, the Dome of the Rock on there, you see that none of those original buildings from the temple complex are standing to this day. So you can see with your own eyes the empirical confirmation of this risky prediction. There's also another element of Jesus' prophecy, which I call, run for the hills. This is from uh, Luke, which I would date around 61. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea, in Jerusalem, etc., must flee to the mountains. Those inside the city must leave it. Those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all things that are written. And from Mark 13, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it or he does not belong, then let those who are in Judea, Jerusalem, etc., flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. There seems to be a bit of a difference here. In other words, when you see armies coming to surround Jerusalem, flee. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, flee right now. The end is nigh. Well, some commentators link the phrase about the abomination that causes desolation uh, to the events of AD 70, when Titus forces his way into the temple sanctuary, his soldiers set up standards, the imperial standards, which the Jews would have considered um, uh, uh, idols in the temple, and they sacrifice to their standards in the temple and proclaim Titus emperor. But for example, commentator Robert Stein, in his commentary on this, uh, in Jesus, the Temple and the Coming Son of Man, says that this linkage can't be made because it's too late to serve as a sign to flee Jerusalem after the siege of Jerusalem when flight was no longer possible. See, so he's saying there's a difficulty with his interpretation. But here, um, extra biblical information comes to our rescue. Uh, for a long time, it's been known that there are various tunnels underneath Jerusalem. It was discovered in the 19th century, and indeed in 2007, archaeologists rediscovered the main drainage ditch uh, in Jerusalem, which runs here along the yellow line from the temple complex all the way down the main street, under the main street, down to the Shiloh Pool of Jerusalem, near the uh, gate of the Essenes there. Norman Golb, who's a professor of Jewish history at the University of Chicago, says that underground passages enabled many inhabitants of Jerusalem to exit the city and flee, both south to Masada and via the Nahal Kidron and other wadis heading from Jerusalem eastward 
towards the Dead Sea. Professor Reich of the University of Haifa and Eddie Sukron of the Israel Antiquities Authority comment that there's evidence in the writings of Josephus that numerous people took shelter uh, in this uh, drainage channel and even lived in it for a period during the siege until they succeeded to flee the city through its southern end. So I thought, well, let's go and have a look at the writings of Josephus. And indeed, he does mention those who during the siege went down into the subterranean caverns and says that the Romans made a search for Jews underground. And when they found where they were, they broke up the ground and slew all that they met with. But here's the clincher. He mentions a little later on that Judas, the son of Jairus, had been a captain of a certain band at the siege of Jerusalem. And by going down into a certain vault underground, had made his escape. So even at the time when the uh, Romans conquered the temple, they've laid siege to the city already, they've conquered the temple, it was possible to get out of the city if you knew someone who worked for the sewage department. <laughs> so what might skeptics say about this? Well, surely the obvious thing to say is, oh, this is just backdated prophecy. This is written after the event and written as if it were fulfilled prophecy. Well, uh, Josephus is useful here in a much as he records the prophecy of another Jesus, a peasant and son of Ananias, who at the Feast of the Tabernacles prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple in AD 60. Uh, well, if Jesus, son of Ananias, could make a prediction prior to AD 70, why not Jesus of Nazareth? Well, of course, the problem is that Jesus' prediction is a lot more specific than Jesus, son of Ananias' prediction. He just says, Jerusalem and its temple are going to be destroyed. Woe, you know, woe to you. But Jesus says, it'll happen in a generation. Not one stone will be left on another. The stones will be thrown down. Not only is it important to get out of Jerusalem when you see the armies coming, but it's really important to get out when you see this abomination that causes desolation, and so on. Wenham and Steve Walton note in their commentary that Matthew and Mark's verses about this invite the disciples to pray that the siege of the city will not be in winter. But the siege happened during April to September in AD 70. Luke reports the same saying as Mark, that the disciples should flee to the mountains. And while we know that the early Christians did flee Jerusalem at this stage, they went to Pella, a place called Pella, which is several hundred feet lower than Jerusalem. They didn't flee to the mountains. So if you were writing this after the event, why would you have these sayings about pray that it doesn't happen in winter and flee to the mountains when you know that it didn't happen in winter anyway and the Christians did flee but they went downhill? <laughs> Indeed, why not mention, if you're writing after the event, why not mention the events of AD 70 as proving that Jesus was a reliable prophet of God? It would be an odd thing to leave out if you're writing it after the event. Also, Acts appears to, uh, prior to the execution of Paul in about 65, and Luke's Gospel was probably written a little bit earlier than Acts, part of a two-part work. The portrayal of the Roman authorities in Acts fits well with uh, a date prior to Nero's persecutions of, of Christians in the uh, mid-60s and so on. And that nothing is said about the martyrdom of, of James, let alone Paul, uh, the brother of Jesus. Um, Josephus records he was martyred in AD 62. Again, it indicates that Acts was written before news of that event had reached Rome at the very least, and thus that Luke's gospel predates that milestone, as it were. So various commentators will argue on these kind of grounds that there's no reason to date Luke any later than the early 60s. Uh, and I've quoted a, a few others there, and as I say, I would put Mark, therefore, as a gospel that Luke drawn as earlier than the early 60s. So if you just follow the evidence of, of the gospels themselves without 
the question begging example uh, assumption, well, this must be written afterwards because prophecy can't happen reliably. If you just follow the evidence, then it shows you that these, these predictions predate uh, the events that fulfilled them. And as I said, the key here is the specificity of the predictions. Within a generation, no stone on another, stones throw down, flight most ur urgent after the desecration of the temple. And indeed, you, you could add that he, he notes things about what happens to the populace being sold off into slavery and so on that are true as well. Well, back of the envelope, and this is back of the envelope calculations, but I think they're not unreasonable. Indeed, they might, you might think they're rather bending over backwards uh, to be cautious. Uh, but let's use a lot of 1 in 10s, because that makes our, our mathematics easier as we go through. <laughs> At odds of 1 in 10 each for these predictions, we could say the unlikeliness of these predictions all coming true just by chance would be 1 in 10 to the 4. That's 1 in 10,000. That's 1 in 10 times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10. So let's think a little bit more carefully about criteria because we've started introducing thinking about criteria here. Let me take you to the Roman uh, scholar Cicero. In a famous uh, passage that philosophers often talk about when they're looking at design arguments in the ancient world, Cicero said this, if a countless number of copies of one in 20 letters of the Greek alphabet made of whatever you will were thrown together into some receptacle and then just shaken out onto the ground, would it be possible that they would produce the Annals of Aeneas, a book? I doubt whether chance could possibly succeed in producing even a single verse, just by tipping out the Scrabble pieces. So taking our cue from Cicero, he's really arguing like this to introduce some terminology from intelligent design theory. Complex specified information, or CSI, that's not uh, CSI crime scene uh, investigation, uh, complex specified information must have an external cause. Greek letters don't contain the CSI in a Greek verse that they're arranged into. So if you see a verse made out of letters, that CSI had to come from outside of the letters themselves. But chance is very unlikely to produce much CSI, whereas we do know from our experience that minds easily inform matter with information. So the best explanation of a verse in Greek letters is that a mind informed the arrangement of the letters. This kind of thinking has been updated recently in uh, those scholars within the intelligent design movement, pointing particularly to Dembski's uh, book in Cambridge Studies of Probability on the design inference. But here's a summary from uh, the American philosopher William Lane Craig he gives a nice concrete example. I'll give you some other concrete examples to think about as well. He says, as a basis for a design inference, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. For example, in a poker game, any deal of the cards is equally and highly improbable. It's one possible deal, out of all of the possible deals, yeah? So they're all very improbable. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet, pun intended, that this is not the result of chance. If you accused him of cheating and he said, what's your problem? Look any deal of cards that I get is just as improbable as any other, that's not going to allay your suspicions because it's not just the improbability of what happened, but it's this conformity to an independently known significant pattern. So back to Scrabble letters in English this time. If you were taking out letters from a Scrabble bag and you formed that sequence of letters, that is highly improbable or complex, unlikely. But it is not specified, it's gibberish. So although I might have deliberately chosen and arranged each of those letters, that might be the product of design, but you can't tell that just by looking. 
just by looking at the available data, your best explanation would be chance. Again, if I drew out the letters D-O-G, that would be uh, specified. We already know that's an English word. But hitting that specification is not very unlikely because that's not very complex. But if I was taking out Scrabble letters from the bag here, a bit like they do in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and, you know, it says, you know, what is the, the answer to the great question of the universe and everything's 42. If I drew out the phrase, all things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, design, and some by chance, Plato, laws. If I drew that out of the Scrabble bag, um, you would not take, oh, chance as the obvious explanation. Neither, indeed, would you take, oh, there must be some, I've just discovered a new law of physics that produces the works of Plato out of Scrabble letters. Um, this is both complex and specified, and clearly the best explanation of that is it's the product of design, or Plato's category of, of artifice. You see someone enter a sequence of numbers into a cash machine, a hole-in-the-wall machine, and it gives them money. Were they lucky? Or did they get the money by design? Well, when a, a complex event matches an independently given specified pattern, we naturally infer design. Now, your PIN number for your account is a four-digit number. Uh, a PIN has four digits, each of which has 10 options, 0, 1 to 9. So there are 10 to the 4 different personal identification numbers. So uh, you've got a 1 in 10,000 chance of a specific PIN being guessed correctly on any particular try. That's the same odds as Jesus's prediction about the temple complex for nice parity here. And if you naturally infer design in one case, why not another? So as Thomas Morris argues, a single successful prediction about a remote or unlikely event could just be a lucky guess, a shot in the dark that just happens to hit the target. But the more successful predictions of that sort that a person is able to make, the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just ascribing it all to luck. And there's a relationship here. This is an interesting uh, graph, uh, interesting relationship here between the number of prophecies that you make and how unlikely each of them is. So uh, a, a, a few very unlikely to come true prophecies would be just as impressive as a lot of prophecies that come true, even though individually each of them isn't particularly unlikely. But it's the overall unlikeliness combined with the specificity. But how improbable is improbable enough? So here I have with me a four-digit combination lock, which I'm going to uh, pass around to the audience, and you can have a go at seeing if you can crack the combination and pass it round, and we'll see if anyone manages to crack it by the end of our session. I'm, I'm betting not, and I've calculated the probabilities, so it could happen, but it's unlikely. This, on this massively longer combination lock here, here we are at 10 to the 4, your pin number or that combination lock. And you get, as you go along here, what's called combinatorial inflation. So when you're working out probabilities, the thing to remember is you don't add them together. So that lock is not a 1 in 10 chance plus a 1 in 10 chance plus a 1 in 10 plus a 1 in 10. It's a 1 in 10 times a 1 in 10 times a 1 in 10. So um, 1 in 10 to the 8 here it's not double 1 in 10 to the 4. It's massively larger than double 1 in 10 to the 4. So you get a sort of inflation that does this as you're moving up here. Now, William Dembski, I mentioned him earlier. He's done a lot of work on the mathematics of this. He's a mathematician and a philosopher. He notes that a seemingly improbable event can become quite probable when placed within the appropriate reference class 
of what he calls probabilistic resources. In other words, think of it, how many dice am I throwing? You know, if I throw one dice, I've only got a one in six chance of getting the number one. But if I throw a thousand dice, very likely that I'm going to get a one. You see? So what are the probabilistic resources? On the other hand, it may remain improbable even after all of the relevant probabilistic resources have been factored in. If it remains improbable, <coughs> complex, and if the event's also specified, then it still exhibits specified complexity and you can infer design. Now, when he's talking about design inferences within um, biology and so on, um, Dembski has calculated a, a universal probability bound based on how old the universe is and the Planck time is the shortest time that events can happen in and the number of fundamental particles in the universe and so on. And he gets a number of uh, one in uh, 10 to the 150. Those are the number of possible events in the entire history of the universe. Um, but that seems to be overly generous when the appropriate reference class when we're thinking about miracles is human history. Human history is a minute portion of the history of the entire universe. Well, the French mathematician Emile Borel famously proposed one in 10 to the 50 as a universal probability bound, that any specified event as improbable as that could never be attributed to chance reasonably. And I think if the reference class for biblical prophecy arguments is human history, or the history between the prophecy and whenever it is fulfilled, whenever it says, because sometimes they, they specify when they're going to be fulfilled, you know, within a generation, etc. A smaller probability bound would probably suffice. How do I set exactly where that is? I have no idea. Uh, suggestions for reasonably making a case of what our probability bound should be uh, welcomed. But here's my criteria, therefore. Let's say this. If there is a close correspondence between the most plausible reading of one or more prophetic predictions and a sufficiently improbable event or series of events, then the best explanation for that match is design. And secondly, in such a case, so that's for fulfilled prophecy, here's from, in such a case, if the prediction or predictions were A, written down, made some time before the event, very important, uh, and the event couldn't be or wasn't humanly manipulated to fit the prediction, then the best explanation of that match will appeal to the supernatural resources of the religious context of the prophecy and the, the prophet making them. Okay. So let's go back to applying them. Let's take another dip into the Old Testament this time. Uh, Sennara Cherub and Jerusalem, when Sargon, king of Assyria, died in 705 BC, various subject states, including the Jews, saw an opportunity to throw off their subservants. Hezekiah, king of Judah, ceased to pay tribute and entered into a pact with Egypt. In 703 BC, Sennacherib, Sargon's son, began a series of campaigns to quash opposition and put his stamp of rule back on the empire. Hezekiah expected the Egyptians to come to his aid. They didn't. Uh-oh. Two Kings tells us that Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Very recently, an interesting archaeological find, we have found Hezekiah's personal seal of office. This is his seal and it says on it, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. So there he is in the archaeological record. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib came up against all the fortified cities of, of Judah and took them, according to two kings, writing in about 560-ish BC. We've got some reliefs here. You can, if you get a chance to go to the British Museum in London, and there's a lot of material relating to this historical episode in the British Museum. Lachish, the Lachish relief, and this is just one panel from the Lachish relief, uh, one of the chief cities of the kingdom of Judah, and in 701 it was captured by Sennacherib. Here you can see his troops going up there, 
siege ramps uh, against the city walls and uh, various stones being lobbed down at them and arrows being fired back and everything. Very dramatic stuff. After the capture of the town, here we have a few unfortunate Jews being uh, flogged and flayed by their Assyrian captors. So the Assyrian war machine was the, the ruthless, powerful war machine of the biggest empire in the world. Judah was a small vassal kingdom left on its own without the resources of Egypt that it was banking on in order to shore itself up against the might of the Assyrians. And then the war machine has defeated all of the other cities of, of, of Israel, of Judah, apart from Jerusalem. And then there's a reprieve. 701 BC, Isaiah tells us that Sennacherib received a report that Tirkah, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. This is up in the north. When he heard it, he sent messages to Hezekiah with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. In other words, I'm popping up north to deal with this other guy because it's more important than you, but I'll be back. Okay. <laughs> now, for a long time, historians didn't have a clue who this uh, Tirkana, the king of Cush, was. But again, in the British Museum, you can now see, here he is. This is King Tirkana under the protection of his god, Amun. And uh, so again, we have him in the archaeological record. During this reprieve, Hezekiah has time to prepare the defences of Jerusalem. Um, we've got to do something, uh, keep everyone busy at the very least, otherwise they're you know, just going to grow out of their minds. So um, let's build the walls up, Hezekiah's wall here, um, 20 foot thick, 27 feet high. They, they cannibalised various houses to improve the walls of Jerusalem. The famous Hezekiah's tunnel redirecting the spring water from outside the city to inside the city. Uh, this relates back to getting out of Jerusalem through the water channels and so on. Um, you even have the inscription here that celebrates when the two team of diggers manage to meet each other in the middle to great celebration. So they prepare as much as they can uh, as uh, chronicled in, in two chronicles and two kings. And then back to Isaiah. 701 BC, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. Don't let your God deceive you, says Sennacherib. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Again, note, this is pretty specific. This is not just, don't worry, guys, you'll win. It's specific stuff. We're told in Isaiah that the angel of the Lord went out and put to death some 5,180, it's probably a better translation here, men of the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew and returned to Nineveh, his capital, and stayed there. Now, this is about 400 BC, but it is mentioned in Chronicles that Hezekiah and Isaiah cried out to, to heaven uh, about this invasion, and the Lord sent an angel who annihilated the fighting men and the commanders in the camp of the Assyrian king, so he withdrew in disgrace. And it's also prophesied that Snowcarib would be put to death. I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down by the sword. Uh, although, as you can see from the dates, this dates from well after the events. So, Isaiah and two kings between them report prophecies that due to divine intervention, Sennacherib wouldn't attack Jerusalem. Let's say that's a chance of one in a hundred. I mean, he's specifically threatened, I will come back to finish you off having successfully taken the rest of the kingdom. So I think one in a hundred is pretty generous <laughs> here. Uh, that he wouldn't take Jerusalem, let's just say one in ten. That he would go back to Nineveh without having taken Jerusalem and wouldn't return to finish the job. Again, one in a hundred. 
Well, that's odds of 1 in 10 to the 5. Now, these secondary prophecies that I've mentioned, they're made after the event, but they report. They were made before the event, but the reporting of them is from after the event, unfortunately, which weakens our hand. So I'm not going to concentrate on those very much. But remember, 1 in 10 to the 5 is a lot more improbable than 1 in 10 to the 4. So as an illustration, if you had two one-foot cubes of English pennies, the smallest English coin, they would contain just under 1 in 10 to the 5 coins. And you've got to pick out the one marked coin on your first guess at which one it might be blindfolded. Those are your chances. From the Babylonian record, from the Snoqualmie's prism, which is again in the British Museum, we read, as for Hezekiah the Judite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities I besieged and took. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut in Jerusalem, his royal city. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities, which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land and gave them to various other people. And then he says nothing else. There is a very interesting but significant silence in the Babylonian record about what the heck happened to Jerusalem then. <laughs> well, Kings do not record their failures in the ancient world. Here's a picture of um, the Assyrian uh, assault ramp you see in the bottom left there uh, at Lachish. And there's archaeological evidence of arrowheads and so on and so forth. There's none of that at Jerusalem from the period. There's no evidence that Snerokarib laid siege to Jerusalem. He surrounded it and turned people back into it, but he didn't get to the stage of actually building siege walls and firing arrows and, and so on. It's not there in the archaeological record. And there is an interesting passage in the Greek historian Herodotus, writing in the 5th century BC, who writes about a massive destruction of Sennacherib's army and what he calls the entrance to Egypt. Have a look where Israel is on the map between Assyria and Egypt. And uh, Herodotus depicts a plague of field mice that chewed up the Assyrians' leather bowstrings overnight. Mmm, tasty bowstrings. <laughs> and their shield straps and their quivers and so on all get eaten overnight by this plague of field mice. But he attributes this uh, destruction of the fighting efficiency of Snerokarim's army to divine intervention. Maybe this is a garbled... Uh, memory from a pagan source of something happening swiftly to destroy the fighting efficiency of the Assyrian army in that part of the world in a way that is attributed to divine intervention. And the Bible reports on the death of Sennacherib that was prophesied by Isaiah. Um, we get this in 701 from Isaiah. In two kings, that's probably quoting from Isaiah, but also in Chronicles uh, in an independent form in about 400 BC. And we have records of this independently from the Babylonian accounts as well. In the 7th century BC Babylonian Chronicles note that on the 20th day of the month of Tebatu, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, his son killed him in a rebellion. And the annals of Urshadon, who's the third son of Sennacherib, in 680 BC writes, My brothers forsook the gods, turned to their deeds of violence, plotting evil behind my back. I wasn't part of the palace coup, don't blame me. Oh, I didn't know anything about it, Governor. Committed unwarranted deeds to gain the kingship. They slew Sennacherib, their father, um, but then they scarpered afterwards. They didn't have the follow-through. And Ershadon is mentioned in the Bible as well in various places. So, again, you've got the biblical account and the extra-biblical Babylonian and archaeological account matching up with one another. So the extra-biblical evidence, so you're not pointing to the Bible to say this was fulfilled, the extra-biblical evidence shows that Sennacherib didn't raise a siege ramp against Jerusalem, didn't shoot arrows against Jerusalem, didn't take Jerusalem, that the army was suddenly rendered impotent without human intervention even, 
that he returned to Nineveh, that he didn't ever come back to finish the job, that he was murdered, and he was murdered in his own country. But again, the crucial issue is going to be the dating of the prophecies. Best reference I point you to, and there's a, a website that goes along with this book as well, Dating the Old Testament by Craig Davis, and he's got datingtheoldtestament.com, where you can get access to that material. Again, if you follow the, the, the evidence of the dating without appealing to the, uh, the question-begging presumption, well, this must be written after the event because predictive prophecy is impossible, that's the right historical methodology, I would argue, that you have to follow the evidence of dating for the Old Testament rather than setting its dating by this assumption that a uh, naturalistic worldview is true. You're just begging the question against the prophecy argument if you don't do that. And that any charge of fraud, which is basically what this charge would amount to, any charge of fraud needs to be sustained by independent evidence. So what's your evidence that this was, this was a fraud written after the event but pretending to be written before it? There is none. There's no evidence which is nice to point out to people, particularly in the New Atheist movement, who are always saying, evidence is the thing. You've got to follow the evidence where it leads, but now I will argue completely on the basis of my philosophical presumption. <laughs> you know. And they do that time and time again. Pseudonymous forgeries, forgeries that pretend to be written by people they're not written by. Well, that wouldn't explain how short-term prophecy functioned in Jewish society to get prophecy accepted by their society. How do you account for that on the assumption that all of this biblical prophecy stuff is pseudonymous forgery? Uh, and even Bar Ehrman, well known skeptic, notes that ancient sources took forgery seriously. It's not like, oh, well, they didn't care about forgery in the ancient world. No, they almost always condemn it in strong terms. And you can see from, you know, if, if Deuteronomy condemns an, so, someone who is a prophet making a prophecy and they get it wrong, well, then, the, then you should kill them. Um, what, what sort of view would they take of someone who pretends to be a prophet <laughs> and puts words into the mouth of someone who was a prophet? So they're not going to look kindly uh, upon that, socially speaking. It's unlikely to happen. But in terms of dating the Old Testament prophecies, the last book of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, was written about 450 B.C., the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament both come from about 150 BC. So they prove that the Old Testament writings existed prior to the New Testament era. Whatever the arguments about the dating here or there of Old Testament passages, they're definitely at least 150 years prior to the New Testament stuff. Um, that'll be granted even by liberal uh, uh, arguments. So, looking at my time now, um, actually I will skip Tyre, another Old Testament city prophecy you could look into Tyre, and very briefly there's this prophecy that seems to split into a lot of talking about many nations coming against Tyre, they, and a specific bit in the middle about Nebuchadnezzar coming against Tyre. Um, so there's a sort of shortish term and then a long-term element to this prophecy, which is nice. It's pretty specific about what will happen, um, and indeed you can show again, extra biblically and so on, that this is what happened, particularly the long-term stuff was fulfilled by Alexander the Great 250 years after the prophecy, when um, he uses the rubble left over from destroying the, the mainland city of Tyre, and he puts the rubble into the sea to build a causeway out to the island city fortress of Tyre. So over time, sand and so on has accumulated uh, to make this sort of an isthmus, rather than, as it was originally, the land and the island. And that's because um, there's a bit in the prophecy that says that Tyre will be leveled and the rubble of Tyre will be put into the sea. <laughs> uh, and that's done by, uh, by Alexander the Great. So you can see here's a photo. After treating Tyre with the greatest atrocity, Alexander rebuilt it and replanted it 
so that future generations would regard him as the founder of a new city. So he, he expunges Tyre as it was. And yes, there is now a town of Tyre in the vicinity of the ancient city, but it's got no connection. There's no organic connection to the old city, which is gone. And indeed, as is featured in the prophecies, fishermen have indeed used the spot for generations for the spreading of their nets. So again, it's the specifications, as Robert Newman says about Tyre, they're sufficiently unusual, unlikely, complex, to make coincidence unlikely. And they're filled by a range of actors over such a time span as to rule out the plausibility of intentional human fulfillment, which is, which is key. And again, just using some back-of-the-envelope calculations, you could get odds of at least 1 in 10 to the 8 for that series of prophecies. Whatever you make of the prophecy aspect of looking at Old Testament prophecies, they do show, the evidence clearly shows, that the Old Testament presents us with reliable accounts of what happened in history. Even if these are written after the event, you think, and indeed the longer after the event you think these prophecies are written, the more astonishing it is that they have accurate knowledge and information of what happened several hundred years ago, so say, when these events happened. It's not like you can just go onto Wikipedia and look up what happened in order to crib it for your scroll back in the day. But the fact that the Old Testament accurately reports the historical fate of these cities, even if you think that's after the fact, actually goes to support the proposition that it accurately reports the existence and the content of the city prophecies. Because it's been shown to give accurate history in the other cases, generally. So there's something of a, a tension within trying to say this is all um, post-date. Messianic prophecies, appealed to by Augustine and Pascal and various chaps. <laughs> Very useful organizing verse for this is 1 Peter 1, verse 10 to 11, where Peter specifies different, different areas of prophecy from the Old Testament that he groups the Messianic prophecies into. And I, in my book, Understanding Jesus, I go through the different areas that Peter lists. I'm not going to go through them all because I haven't got a huge amount of time left. But again, arguments against historicized prophecy, this is sort of the other direction, to say not that they made up that the prophecies were there, but they made up that the events happened in order to make it seem like Jesus is a figure that fulfills the events. Well, they say, they say they're not doing it. We did not follow cleverly devised stories. We were eyewitnesses, etc., it's implausible to think the disciples invented non-historical details in reports of, for example, Jesus' death and resurrection to historicize these Old Testament prophecies when clearly from their own report they only interpreted those Old Testament passages as being about Jesus after the fact because of their experiences of what happened to Jesus and particularly the resurrection. Um, it's not as if they can say, yeah, this is what we expected to happen. They say this is something happened that we didn't expect, but which fulfills these prophecies we can now see in the benefit of hindsight. But it's kind of embarrassing to them that they didn't expect it, particularly when Jesus himself predicts that it's going to happen and tells them. So that's embarrassing. And people don't tend to tell stories against themselves unless they're true. It's implausible given the integrity displayed by the gospel writers' use of embarrassing stories uh, in the gospels. Peter's denial of Christ, the female witnesses to the resurrection being the first witnesses to the resurrection in the empty tomb and so on. Implausible giving their willingness to be martyred for these claims. That doesn't show that what they were claiming was true, but I suggest it does give lots of evidence that they believed that it was true. So they, 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 they didn't think that they had made up these fulfillments, as it were. Leave aside, there were deliberate fulfillments, like making a new covenant or riding a donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus deliberately did those things to make messianic claims. Those things could be used in arguments that already assume the existence of God to say he was the Messiah, but you're not going to use them in an argument from prophecy for the existence of God without begging the question. So leave those aside. But there's plenty over which Jesus had no control humanly speaking, of whether he fulfills these Old Testament Messianic prophecies about his lineage, the time of birth, place of birth, being perceived as a healer, 
rejected by the authorities, repudiation by Peter, the time and circumstances of his death, rising from the dead. That's a pretty hard one to pull off on your own bat as well. Um, so uh, this is just cribbing from my, my book on understanding Jesus and looking at various categories that, that Peter runs there and doing some back-of-the-envelope calculations and looking at some extra-biblical evidence again. So uh, Phlegon records um, that Jesus was believed to be a prophet. He was accurate uh, during uh, his, uh, his time and so on. That he was believed to be... Uh, someone who worked miracles, and there's multiple independent eyewitness attestation to Jesus working miracles and so on. Uh, attestation from the Talmud, from Josephus, from the pagan philosopher Celsus, that Jesus was regarded as a miracle worker. His fulfillment of 12 prophecies about his origins and actions, one chance in 170 uh, million million, Take 15 aspects of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, one in 1,074 million. Multiply them together. Jesus, Jesus conservatively had uh, a one chance in 182,580 million, million, million chance of fulfilling those prophecies. Just 27 prophecies by chance. Those odds, to give you a concrete example, are comparable to your chances of successfully picking at random on your first attempt a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all of the grains of sand on the planet, or one star out of all of the stars in the observable universe, according to the European Space Agency. Now you might object, some of those numbers depended upon Jesus doing things that were regarded as miraculous, being a prophet, healing people, etc. Yes, okay, let's leave them out then. I did give independent evidence for them. You can give independent evidence for that, but let's leave that out. Let's bend over backwards. James Ditz lists 25 OT prophecies. I don't like his use of um, out of Egypt I will call my son, which is typological in its original context, rather than definitely about the Messiah. So I'm going to swap in a different one, but that's fine. He calculates on a one in four chance very conservative for each of them. That's a 1 in 10 to the 15 probability. That's 1 quadrillion, 1 in 10 to the 15. That's the estimated total number of ants alive on Earth at any one time. Still a pretty big number. So if we keep a running total as we go through these, at odds of 1 in 10 for 25 fulfilled messianic prophecies, that would be 1 in 10 to the 25. Let's multiply in the predictions about Tyre, the long-term predictions about Tyre, 1 in 10 to the 6, that gets us to 1 in 10 to the 31. The Old Testament prophecies, the prime ones, uh, the ones uh, about uh, Sennacherib in Jerusalem there, but leaving aside the stuff about him being killed later. Well, that gets us up to 1 in 10 to the 36. Factor in Jesus' prophecies about the temple, gets us to 1 in 10 to the 40. Um, if you add in the other remaining stuff, 1 in 10 to the 44, but if we use the Messianic prophecy calculation from my Understanding Jesus book, that would put us over 1 in 10 to the 51, which is over Borel's universal probability bound. But, supposing you're still a bit sceptical, let me bend over backwards to be cautious here. Let's lop off a huge amount of this number that we've arrived at and just use the number 1 in 10 to the 34. I was up in the 40s, the 50s. Chop all that off. We're using a minimal set of the data here. Why do I have a snowflake? Well, it's said, isn't it, that every snowflake is individual. I don't know how they can check that. <laughs> the odds are that every snowflake is individual. But suppose that's true. Suppose I say, I have marked with a particular um, radioactive isotope one snowflake. Get into the TARDIS, into Doctor Who's time machine. Go anywhere at any time you like on planet Earth during its history. From today backwards. Stoop down with your tweezers, pick up any snowflake you like. What are the chances that you pick the snowflake that I have 
pre-specified? Well, it's 1 in 10 to the 34. According to David Phillips, who's a senior climatologist with Environment Canada, he estimates that the total number of snowflakes that have fallen on Earth over the course of time is about 1 in 10 to the 34. That is a long odds to bet against. <laughs> and remember, I'm bending over backwards to be cautious in the probability that I'm calculating here. I was cautious in the original calculations, and now I've chopped off a huge proportion of the calculation. And still, 1 in 10 to the 34. So as Thomas Morris says, a fulfilled series of prophecies made by different people at different times over biblical history, culminating in a single fulfillment by the life of so remarkable a person as Jesus. This is the, the religious historical context of this prophetic miracle. It cries out for an explanation of an extraordinary sort. Surely the most reasonable explanation is that the God of Israel was involved in the prophecy and the fulfillment somehow, thereby giving us an extra ground for accepting Jesus as the culmination of divine revelation. So, in conclusion, the Bible certainly contains accurate knowledge about various historical events. And the longer after, if you're skeptical, the longer after those events you try and say those prophe the prophecies were written down in order to put them after the events they're talking about, the harder it is for you to account for the reliability of the historical knowledge in those books about what happened during the time that they're m meant to have come from. So there's a inner tension in that, oh, they must have been written afterwards argument. It's not only a begging the question response to the argument from prophecy, but there's an evidential problem with trying to mount that critique. Secondly, there's evidence, yes, varying in strength, that these events were predicted by specific prophecies made well before the fact. But the best evidence here, interestingly and usefully for a Christian apologist, the best evidence here concerns the fulfillment of messianic Old Testament prophecies in Jesus. Because whatever the quibbles about the dates, for certain, for certain, those Old Testament prophecies were written at least 150 years before Jesus. You know, not even the most liberal member of the Jesus Seminar or whatever is going to question you on that premise. Now, the match between these specific prophecies, you know, they're, they're not, as we've seen, sort of tomorrow you will meet a tall, dark stranger kind of prophecy. <laughs> The specificity of these prophecies uh, is sufficiently unlikely, even when you bend over backwards, to be cautious on the numbers you assign to them as, you, as you're adding them up. Uh, they're sufficiently unlikely, surely, to justify a design inference in relation to the appropriate probabilistic resources. They're under the kind of universal probability bound that design theorists will use when they're talking about the origin of life or whatever. And again, they're bending over backwards to grant the critic as much as possible when they do that. Um, but, and I, I'm not sure yet how to make the, the best in principled argument as to what number you should assign to the relevant probabilistic resources. But I think the way to handle that is just to, to say to the skeptic, Look, I'm being really conservative on the numbers I calculate here, and when I get to the end of my argument, I'm ditching most of my evidence, and I'm still making an argument that intuitively speaking here, come on, really, one snowflake out of all of the snowflakes, one grain of sand out of all of the... Really? <laughs> um, why don't you do some back-of-the-envelope calculations yourself then? You know. So that match is sufficiently unlikely, I think, to justify a design inference. And here's where we come on to the argument from fulfilled prophecy. 
given the, the historical religious context that this all happens in, surely the best, the least ad hoc explanation is that revelation from the biblical God is involved here. And that gets you an argument not just towards, you know, some kind of a God, a first cause or whatever, a designer of the universe, as many arguments for God will get you. Uh, many arguments for God will be consistent with a sort of deistic view of God. But this gets you to a very rounded, theistic, biblical view of God, a God who has foreknowledge and or power, who has intelligence, who has a moral concern, who's intervening within the history of the Jews to give a Messiah for the whole world's benefit, etc., etc. So it's one of the arguments for God um, that gets you towards a rather rich conception of what you mean by God at the end, in contrast with some other arguments for God. Now, I would just bundle all of the arguments for God together in a great big cumulative identikit, uh, kind of photo fit photo uh, via Occam's razor uh, to, to fill out and make as rich as possible of conception of God from, from, um, from theology. But this would be part of what's called ramified natural theology, um, a, a, an argument for God that does use data from the field of revelation without assuming that it's revelation. Thank you.